You are listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit vineyardaugusta.org. I'd like to begin our sermon time this morning by just inviting you to be um, reflective for a few moments. Maybe if, you're, if we're still in this beginning of January, perhaps um, you're still kind of reflecting back over the last year, looking ahead to the, to the future. Um, but I want you to think back all the way to like 2010, some of you are like, oh my gosh, I was seven, right? That's fine. Like all the way back to 2010. And just consider for a moment over these last 14 years, like how has your life changed? Just see what comes to you. Like what, what are one or two ways in which your life um, especially has like improved or in what ways have you like grown or matured? What sort of landmark things can you name um, and just acknowledge them, right? And think really practically. Like maybe, maybe you moved to a new town. Maybe you started a new job or a career. Uh, maybe you grew emotionally in your ability to relate to other people. Maybe you learned a new skill or a new hobby, right? But there's some kind of turning points that you can see and name. That's like, wow, I really, I've, I didn't have this as a part of my life then, and I do now. So kind of hold those in your mind a little bit. The, the second part of that question is, like, in relation to that area of growth or improvement, who were the significant people involved in that part of your journey? Somebody was there. Somebody was present. Somebody was actively involved, um, maybe helped encourage you along. Maybe they like sparked the thing that ended up changing, right? Just, just name the faces as they come to you. Somebody you're aware of. Like, how did they help you? How did they strengthen you? How did they encourage you? Uh, maybe what did you learn from them? Maybe it, was, maybe it was kind of just learning by osmosis. Maybe it was learning because they were actively investing in you and teaching you some way. Right? How, how were they just good to you? And you know, this, this thing that changed in my life wouldn't have happened without that person. What we're talking about this week, we're in our series called No Other Gospel. And today, um, we're going to be talking about the fact that, that the wise follow Jesus through the fog of life with the help of companions and sages. The wise follow Jesus through the fog of life with the help of companions and sages. And so the title of today is just Companions and Sages. And let's pray right now and begin with a prayer of thanksgiving for these people that maybe have already come to mind. God, we pause and we give you thanks for, for the things that we can look back over the last 14 years to 2010 and name that have gotten better in our lives, that bring us more joy that feel healthier, that feel stronger. And we thank you especially for these individuals that come to mind. These companions, these friends, these family members, colleagues, professionals, whoever. We thank you for the people that you have brought across our paths. And we acknowledge that that is not an accident, but that each one of them is a gift from you. So we just pause to say thank you. Right now, I encourage you, just in, in your heart, like hold those people's faces up to the Lord's light and just let your heart feel grateful for them. Father, every good and perfect gift comes from you. So we say thank you. 
And this morning, as we open up your scriptures, would you speak to us? Pray that your voice would speak much more loudly than my own. Amen. Amen. Uh, So today we're continuing on in the book of Galatians. We're going to be in chapter two. And what we get, um, this is a bit of a narrative passage still, right? So there's a chunk at the beginning of Galatians where until he gets into like the real topics he wants to like get all fiery about, he's kind of painting a picture of the narrative of his life and some relational things. And so today we get a sneak peek into this period of time where there was like this change and growth in the life of the Apostle Paul, most of which he's talking about that happened before he wrote this letter, and he's recounting it, Um, and even a period where it seems as though he navigated a personal crossroads that he came to, and I think navigated it in a really healthy way. So read with me. This is Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul picks up the narrative that began a little bit in chapter 1. He says, then... After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. And this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, They recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I had been eager to do all along. And there are some scholars that believe that part of the reason that that they arrived in Jerusalem at at this time is because it coincides with a, a financial gift that they were bringing to the suffering church in Jerusalem. So he's like, we're already doing it, already caring for the poor. Now, again, this is largely an autobiographical passage. The main point that I want us to focus on is more about Paul's development in his status as an apostle of the gospel, less directly about the theological topic or issue. But I do want to take a little sidebar for a second, because he does, here in these verses, he introduces the main purpose behind this letter. And the main thrust of this entire letter is to keep the gospel of Jesus from being contaminated by other add-ons. Right? He didn't want the good news of Jesus Christ to, be, to be, have all these other cultural or other religious things tacked onto it. And in this particular situation, um, it was, they were requiring male circumcision. We'll hear more about that in the weeks to come. You'll hear more of that word than you've ever wanted to hear in church. I'll let Reese pick that up more next week. It gets spicy. 
But as Reese has said in the series already, I think this is important to remember, the gospel equals Jesus plus nothing. That's it. And N.T. Wright says that the gospel is the announcement that the crucified and risen Jesus is Lord of the whole world. That is the gospel. The crucified and risen Jesus is the Lord of the whole world, period. That is our great hope. And so Paul's message is important. He's pointing out it was not altered by any other influence. Uh, Paul's companions were not altered by any other influence. Um, But what we're going to take a look at is the way in which Paul's life was altered by his interaction with other believers. His life was the thing that was changed. So as he follows Jesus, what we're going to see is that there were two kinds of relationships Um, that were really key at this significant turning point in Paul's life. Uh, Key relationships that brought him to this moment and some key relationships that helped propel him on from here. And the first are Paul's companions. It's just what I want to call them, right? We we see this, 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 this image of Paul's companions, his friends, people that he just, he kind of did life with. He spent time with them. They ate and traveled together, right? They rented Airbnbs and, you know, stayed with friends as they went around and did things in the world, but really got to know each other. And the first first person that's mentioned is Barnabas. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, I'll I'll introduce some of these people to you like a little bit. Um, It's helpful to know that Barnabas is not his actual name. Um, It's a Greek name that was interpreted by Luke to mean son of encouragement, is some of the more common translations of what Barnabas means. Son of encouragement. Um, the use to call someone son was like an Aramaic idiom to mean if someone was the son of something, it meant that they had this consistent character that was evident in them. So Barnabas, bottom line, was such an encouraging person that it earned him that nickname, right? No one has ever nicknamed me that. I feel very discouraged. But this is just who he was, right? And if you can think about people you know maybe that are just such fabulous encouragers, right? Those would be the kind of people that would earn this nickname Barnabas. Um, What's also interesting is that the Greek word for this is paraklesis, which is the same root as paraclete, which if you know anything about the Greek, is the word that's used for the Holy Spirit. The one who comes alongside, the advocate, the comforter, the encourager. When you think about who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does in our lives, that's the kind of person Barnabas was. What a tremendous person. Like, can we just pause and just wish that we all had friends like that? Right? I mean, maybe you do. Maybe you do have friends like that. Maybe those were some of the people that came to your mind. You, you had these Barnabases along the line in these last 14 years or so that encouraged you in that way. Um, If you are one of those people, um, I'd like to take you to lunch today. (laughs) So Paul and Barnabas, they became really, really close friends as associates. Barnabas was probably the prominent person that he actually stuck side by side with and traveled with for a while. Um, Now, their relationship began 14 years prior to this letter being written. Um, And what happened is that Paul returned to Jerusalem after his dramatic conversion. If you remember, he was persecuting the early church. He had this dramatic um, encounter with the risen Jesus um, while he was traveling to a town called Damascus where he was going to beat up on some Christians. 
fell to the ground, blind for a few days. Okay, I believe in Jesus now. That's the, that's the, that's the story, more or less. But what happens is he came and he, he went to Jerusalem to try to meet with some of the apostles, but they were obviously kind of nervous about him, right? They were like, wait, this dude used to like kill people and now we're just supposed to like believe he's one of us. So they were cautious. Barnabas, however, believed his conversion to be true and so became his advocate, his paraclete, right? Became his advocate among the Jerusalem leaders. And because they believed Barnabas so much, they came to believe Paul. Paul went on from there. It was kind of uh, off the grid for a bit while. But in the early days of their relationship, Barnabas served as a sort of like sponsor and mentor to Paul. He had, he had become a follower of Jesus much earlier than Paul had. He was definitely his encourager. And they, they had this strong affinity for one another, spent years traveling, evangelizing, and pastoring churches together. The, the second companion that, that Paul mentions here is a, is a guy named Titus. Um, now, in a manner that's not entirely clear, right? We never get like Paul's like training manual in the Bible, um, but Paul trained coworkers who were gifted in preaching and teaching, and Titus was one of those. He was one of those that um, they were occasionally sent out to preach and teach in churches that Paul would maybe want to go visit, and he's like, I can't do it, so I'm gonna send Titus, right? Um, one time Titus was sent to Corinth on a really difficult mission, right? Um, and it says in the confidence that Titus, quote, walks in the same spirit, in the same steps as Paul. So there was a lot of commonality and trust that Paul saw in Titus. Titus was also apparently a, a, a financially generous benefactor. Uh, he was at times entrusted with collections on behalf of people um, in need, so he served as this model of generosity. Uh, Titus, in some ways, too, he served as a sort of like secretary slash interpreter slash protege slash emissary of Paul's. And in this ever-broadening ministry later on in the years, especially as Paul's uh, ministry kind of spread around the world without the conveniences of, of like modern communication that we have today, right? If Paul wanted to do ministry somewhere else, the best thing to do was to send someone gifted that he could trust, right? You go, you care for these churches that I love so much. But again, so the picture that we get here, Paul kind of just mentions it really briefly. Hey, I took Barnabas and Titus with me to Jerusalem. It's because these were like his besties. Paul was not a lone ranger. He had not been a lone ranger the whole time. He was not traveling to do this particular mission for, for all, like all on his own. He had people with him. And my question to us this morning is, since 2010, over the last 14 years, I picked that time frame because that's the time frame Paul's talking about, right? 14 years since 2010, who have been your companions? Maybe, maybe now one or two new people are popping into your mind that didn't come earlier, but you're recognizing, oh, there was a Titus. There was someone that I really just like had an affinity for and I could trust them with all of this stuff and we partnered together really, really well. Maybe there was a Barnabas who came along and stuck up for me and, and kind of pushed me along and helped me make connections with people and was just an encourager. Um, I had a couple groups of companions over this, this season of time. One, particularly in the season when we were living and pastoring in North Carolina for 13 years, um, 
local there, I, I had like a small gathering of pastor friends from all different denominations. And every single month we would get together and we would have coffee and we would just talk real life. And, and they were these kinds of friends. They were these kinds of encouragers and companions. And when one of us was really, really low and really, really beat down, the others were there to like lift him up. It was beautiful. Um, we also have, I'll name them by name. They were probably not going to be ever listening to this, um, but we have a couple other pastor friends, couples in the vineyard, the Blakeleys and the, uh, um, the Andrews. They're all kind of up north and They've always been huge encouragers. We've traveled a bit with them. We've gone to Bolivia before with them. Uh, we, we always hook up at conferences around the country, right? So we're doing traveling, and we're always making sure, can we get lunch together, right? These kinds of people are needed all along the way to encourage us, to keep us going. Thank God for these gifts that he gives us. Now, the, the, the next turning point is what we see is we get to Paul's sages, is what I'm going to call them. He calls them um, the pillars of the church. Um, He talks about them being esteemed by the local church. Now, again, when Paul first encountered the risen Christ, um, he didn't really run anything by the other Christians at the time. Now, Paul, and Paul really can, he can get a a, a bit of a, uh, um, he's got a bit of a track record for maybe being a little bit arrogant, can you say that about somebody that wrote part of the Bible, right? Um, he's a bit of a know-it-all, definitely a strong character, has really strong opinions. You can argue with him all day long, but just you better bring your A game because he's going to try to take you to the mat, right? Um, but he also exhibits a whole lot of humility, as we'll see in a moment. But when he encountered Christ, he didn't really go and like check this out with the people who were already disciples. He just got right down to the business of spreading the good news among the Gentiles, But later on, three years later, he did go to Jerusalem, right? After three years, he figured, well, maybe I should check in with these guys. He went and spent 15 days with Cephas. If you see the name Cephas, that's the Aramaic name for Peter. It's the same person. And James um, spent 15 days with them before disappearing off the grid again for almost 11 more years. Where he's off, he's, he's encountering Jesus. He's exploring the scriptures. He's receiving more revelation from the Lord. He's spreading this good news of Jesus among the Gentiles, but kind of off the grid. We don't know much about what Paul did during that time period. We do know he had friends like Barnabas. We know that he formed friendships with people like Titus and others. And we know that he drew closer to Jesus and continued to spread the gospel, at least in the area that he was living in. But the the reason I I remind us of that backstory is to paint this picture that for the first 14 years of Paul's discipleship to Jesus, he was largely disconnected from the rest of the church. That we might even call him a little bit of a lone ranger. The, The rest of the apostles who were dominantly in Jerusalem at the time had a lot of community, a lot of tight relationship. They had walked with Jesus together. They were now like pastoring this burgeoning church together. And then there's Paul, way out there. But then what we see is we see this person who largely could be felt like a lone ranger. We see him coming near to them with a really specific question in mind. And it's important to know what he thinks of them. Not just that he esteems them, but he recognizes that the rest of the church esteems these people and holds them up and respects them. 
These Jerusalem apostles had been following Jesus from the very beginning. Some of them were the ones that were, you know, Matthew at the tax collector booth. He calls him, right? James and John, the sons of Zebedee, like, hey, stop fishing, come follow me. Peter, stop fishing, come follow me. Luke came and followed him instead of being a doctor, right? These people had been with Jesus from the beginning. And so they had this kind of natural seniority in the faith that was greater than Paul's, right? They were, they were the old school guys. They were the ones that everywhere that the church looked up to them as the true sages in this new way. And what's interesting though, is Paul did not come to Jerusalem to challenge them. Not in a personal note. Now next week we get to some fun challenge though, and that'll be really interesting to hear about. But his primary purpose was not to come and challenge them, but to seek their wisdom and their insight, and maybe if possible, their blessing and affirmation. We'll get to that in a moment. First, a couple brief tidbits about these people. James, he mentions James. Uh, This is not the disciple James, but this was actually Jesus' brother James, who later became a convert. He was not originally one of the 12, but ended up becoming one of the most prominent leaders in the church in Jerusalem by the time of the Jerusalem Council, which is the time period that we're at here. Um, He is also the traditional author of the book of James, right? So if you're familiar with that book in the New Testament, he wrote that as well. The, The second person he mentions is Cephas or Peter. Again, the Bible loves being confusing about names sometimes. First, he's Simon, right? Then Jesus changes his name to Peter. Then like people start using the Aramaic form Cephas and we're like all confused, right? Same guy. Um, I will just say Peter is probably one of the people in the New Testament that is the most intriguing, right? He's one of the most passionate. He is one of the most impetuous. He is, he's one of the most exciting. He's one of the most frustrating of all of the disciples, he was, he was not only one of the 12, but he was one of Jesus's inner circle. This inner circle of three that he seemed to have a, an especially close relationship with and took them to things like when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and was transfigured before them. And they saw his glory. He was also the first disciple to confess that Jesus was the Messiah that had been promised in the Old Testament. He was the first one. And Jesus said, you weren't taught this by men, but it was divine revelation from God. Like Peter was the first one that it clicked. He is the one that we've been waiting for. He became the de facto leader of, of the Christian church, and in part because Jesus kind of like placed that on him. Um, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox alike consider him to be the first bishop of Rome, right, a.k.a. the Pope. It was Peter who preached the gospel. On the day of Pentecost, Peter's the one who stands up and preaches the gospel, and 3,000 people come to faith, right? Monster in the faith. Amazing guy. It would be hard to overstate the importance and influence of this poorly educated fisherman, on on not only our faith, but probably the course of the whole world. So he was a pillar of the faith. Then we get to John. Um, John was the son of Zebedee, brother of James. Both of them gave up their careers as fishermen to become disciples of Jesus. Um, Along with Peter, John was one of the inner three, right? In that inner circle. Uh, He was eventually the author of the Gospel of John in which he frequently refers to himself as the one Jesus loved. Paul's probably like, I like this guy. 
you know, arrogance respects arrogance, you know. But it's true, these, John and Jesus had this uniquely special connection and relationship. And so the church knows this about him. Not only did he walk with Jesus, but they were extra, extra close. The depth of their, his relationship with Jesus' relationship with John is most clearly seen when he's hanging on the cross and there's John standing near his mother, Mary, and Jesus says, here is your mother. And then we read, and from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So even here's John, who's like the adopted son now of the mother of Jesus, and he is going to care for her now that Jesus is gone. So we have these pillars, these, these absolute just giants of the faith, and Paul is coming to them. And here's what I think Paul needed from them. He needed assurance and encouragement. And I want to consider this statement for a moment because I think this is really important to understand the personal reason behind Paul's visit. There was a financial reason behind his visit. Most scholars believe they were bringing a gift. There were some theological reasons for his visit that he's got to like challenge some things and make sure the church doesn't go off the rails. But here is this personal reason for his visit. Second half of verse two. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. And I want us to not miss the emotional weight that this carries. And it's important to realize here, uh, like when we're reading most of the New Testament, Galatians certainly is true of this, um, it's a letter. So we're reading someone else's mail, which means a couple of things. We're only getting one side of the story, right? We don't, we don't get the other, if there's other correspondence, we know oftentimes there was letters written back and forth between Paul and churches, but we only got Paul's. So sometimes there's things that we're missing in terms of context. But it also means sometimes we don't have the relational context, so we have to read between the lines a little bit and figure, huh, why would somebody write this in a letter? What does he mean by this? Now, pretend for a moment that you you have an acquaintance. Maybe you're not really close, but you're close enough to be Facebook friends, which is legitimate. That's how you know you're real friends. So you have this Facebook friend. And, and say like 14 years earlier, they had this like tremendous conversion experience, right? They were like living like hell before then and now they meet Jesus and they're just like telling everybody about the Lord everywhere in their workplace and they're, they're going around the world on mission trips and they're doing all these different things um, and, and they're, they're trying to read the Bible all on their own but they're, but they're like a bit of a lone ranger right? Um, they never stay in one place for too long. They've never been really connected to a local church really firmly, right? Um, but, but it seems great, right? Like you see the fruit of the Spirit in them and like, I mean, they're a bit of a wild card. You don't ever really know what to expect, but you also don't want to argue with them too much. And so they're just kind of doing their thing, right? And after 14 years of this, you read in a Facebook post, that they post something like this. I've hit this point 
And I'm going to go ask some people some questions because I want to make sure that I'm not running and have not been running my, way, my race in vain. If you saw someone write something like that on Facebook, like, what would that mean to you? Here's, here's what I would hear behind a statement like that. I would hear questions like, did I hear something that really wasn't from God after all? Have, have I been on the wrong track like all along? Did I just miss the boat? Am I just, am I kidding myself? Have I, have I been living in some kind of self-delusion in some way? Like, am I just wasting my life? This has been 14 years. I'm at this crossroads. I think this is the crossroads in life that Paul had come to. There was all this revelation from God. There was all this apparent success in ministry and spreading the gospel and things like this. And he had some really close confidants, but he was disconnected from the pillars of the church. And something in him was stirring that he was like, am I on track? Had the past 14 years been a waste? In reading these lines, again, we're reading between the lines a little bit, but it's a letter. We're allowed to do this. Here's what I read, is that Paul was open to being told that he was wrong. Paul was open to people like James, Jesus' brother, grew up with him, lived with him in the same house, now as a leader in his church. He was open to someone like Peter, who was just this giant of the faith. There's John, who had the most intimate, close, personal relationship with Jesus. He was open to coming to them and saying, have I been running the race in vain? And then saying, yeah, Paul, you're kind of a wackadoodle. (laughs) You've missed it, brother Paul. You've gotten it a little bit wrong. Yeah, you're... This whole trajectory you've been on for 14 years like feels a little bit off. You kind of wasted the last 14 years of your life. Well, what I think we see in Paul is this humility before these sages to recognize I've got to hear. Spiritual discernment's a team sport, right? We have to have people all along that we can listen to and not merely listen to, but heed, to hear them well, to listen to them well. We need those encouragers that are our pals and our companions. We need those sages who are wise enough that we can humble ourselves and do this. I've had two spiritual directors over the past 14 years. And these are men that I heed and listen to. When they tell me I need to seek God in this question, I do it. Spiritual directors are pretty good. They're not really supposed to like tell you what to do or not do. But when I get the sense that they're subtly trying to cross that line with me, (laughs) you know, really gently, I listen to them. And this is my final question for you, is who could be your sages? Maybe you don't feel like your life is at a crossroads right now. Maybe you do. Maybe you have this sense like Paul of like, what am I doing with my life? Am I on the right track at all? 
like, I feel like maybe I missed, maybe I missed something along the way. Am I just deluded a little bit? This is why we need these pillars of the church. And you can name who those people are. This is part of why I have these spiritual directors and a couple of other pastors in my life. I would also add my wife in there too as a companion and as a sage. There's times that genuinely, guys, like I believe when Paul talks about mutual submission, that there's times that she's like, Roger, you should not do that. And it's like gray. It's not like a moral thing, right? It's like, you shouldn't do that. And then I do it and I'm like a biggest idiot. because I wasn't listening to like primary sage God gave me. <laughs> who can you come to in humility? Who will you heed even if what they say is painful to your ego? When maybe what they see is a little bit painful to your sense of self. Worship team, you guys can come up. The, the wise Follow Jesus through the fog of life with the help of companions and sages. And just like Paul, you and I, we cannot see the next 14 years of our lives. We might have hints, we might have clues, we might have see little signposts in the fog of where we think life might be going. But we need these encouragers. We need these wise people. Why don't you guys stand with me?